I want to thank you, first of all, for the privilege of uh, being here with you today and have an opportunity to open up God's Word. It's a great honor. Uh, uh, we sing the song Amazing Grace, and it just draws me back, and I hope uh, it is grace is still amazing to you. Uh, so my, I had a great aunt who was, uh, whose name was Grace, and so when I was in college, uh, she actually uh, passed away of a heart attack suddenly. And then just remember, I did not grow up in a Christian home, kind of loosely went to church every now and then. Uh, one of my earliest memories of church, and so when I became a pastor, this was an issue for me, because I don't know if you do candlelight services, brother, or not, but I, I really couldn't do them when I first went to, to pastor it, because when I was five years old, I was in a candlelight service, and I caught the church on fire, so, so I had this candlelight fear, so for years, I, I finally got over it, and we started doing candlelight services. When they got the cups big enough that, you know, you can catch all the wax and all that, so I finally I uh, got over that, but uh, that was one of my earliest memories of church, so uh, I was a little heathen that uh, was ready to set the church on fire, but anyway, it didn't burn down, praise the Lord, so we, we, they put it out, but I still remember that, uh, but at my, great, great, uh, my Aunt Grace's funeral, we sang, the, the song was sung, Amazing Grace, and I remember, you know, the shock of it and losing a loved one and all of that, and, uh, but I, I remember as we were singing that song thinking, I don't know what we're talking about. This grace that's so amazing, what is that? And uh, so as I even cried out to the Lord, I, I need to know about this grace. So God and his providence began moving in different ways, and I ended up in a Baptist school, not because I was Baptist, not because I was a Christian, but to play baseball, and made the baseball team and played college ball. And, and, uh, but we had, it was a conservative, uh, as conservative as it was at that day, uh, anyway, within the uh, Baylor University, which most of you have heard of, probably haven't heard of Mary Harden. So Mary Harden would have been a women's college. Baylor was the men's college. Then Baylor went co-ed way a long time ago. Uh, Mary Harden didn't go co-ed until like the 1970s. So I wasn't there in the 70s. I'm not quite that old. But anyway, <laughs> I was in there in the 80s. So, uh, But uh, we were, I was there, would uh, play baseball. and But we had required chapel, required Bible courses. And my junior year of college, uh, the guy that preached actually played football with me and Joe Green. So see, so that got my attention. Now, I didn't grow up a, a Steeler fan because I grew up in Texas, so you know that, all right? So, uh, but well, I got to watch a lot of Steelers beat the team that I really liked, but I did do that. Uh, but so when he mentioned me, Joe Green, and he played college football, and he was a center, and I played high school football and was a center, and so I guess maybe I, I, uh, I really paid attention. And the only class I ever flunked in college was chapel. The only requirement was attendance, so... I had to take an extra semester, but this is how God works. I was in my extra semester of chapel when there's a special speaker, and, and as I identified and listened in the gospel, I, I, other things had happened that I began hearing the gospel more regularly. Uh, but that week during the services, I got on my knees as a junior in college and asked Christ to save me. Uh, didn't have any idea where that would lead, uh, that I trusted Christ. My wife and I were married the next year. Uh, and then uh, we, uh, we moved to Michigan. I actually was with a computer company, and God called me to preach. And so I left the computer industry and went on staff in a church as a business manager, finance, and did their computers and started seminary. So it's been a joyous journey, and that was back in 1989 when I surrendered called to preach. And so it's been a joyous journey ever since, and I had the privilege of pastoring in three different states, and then now I'm uh, actually one of the burdens of my heart had always been 
uh, to train men for ministry. And so I've been involved in that internationally. I've been involved in training pastors internationally in China and of various in several other countries. Just got back from Togo. Uh, so I'd always had a heart for training men for ministry. So uh, anyway, they called. I had the call and asked to consider praying about coming on staff at seminary. So I always thought at the end of pastoral ministry, I'd love to teach somewhere. I just didn't think I was quite there yet. <laughs> but the Lord knows. And uh, so we are now in South Carolina, uh, someplace we thought we'd never live. Uh, but we are there, and we are teaching in the seminary and have an opportunity to hopefully train up and really have a burden as an institution to raise up young men, uh, equip them for ministry, and train up another generation of preachers. Um, current statistics aren't good just in terms of number of men coming to retirement age and pulpits that are open and young men heading there. And so I hope you pray. I mean, the Lord did tell us, you know, to pray for him to put laborers in the harvest field. In all my years of pastoral ministry, I'll just say that I don't think I ever had somebody in church ask me to pray that way. It's just, we don't usually pray that way. We come to the text, we know we should, but sometimes we just forget that we actually as a church should be praying consistently for God to raise up people from our midst that will be committed to gospel ministry advance. Now, all of us should be individually, whether we're called vocationally or not. I think we all know that. But we should be praying for God to set aside people for that work. And, uh, and so thankful for the heritage your church has. I really enjoyed getting to know your pastor's wife, sweet couple. And generational, that here's a, a father raised a son, son to the ministry. That's a really uh, neat thing. It is really a gracious thing. And uh, so, um, and the church, as the Lord led us to, to go to, one of my ways I was praying is if God was really going to have us go take a seminary position, that uh, just the handing over of the church would be within. And we had two associate pastors, and anyway, one of them was ready, was, had begun, actually, just before they called, had, had come to me and said, hey, some churches are asking me to be willing to be candidate. And I said, okay, so you're ready to take on a senior pastorate. Yes, so. After we prayed through and determined this is what God had for us, I went back and said, well, I, there may be, God may be leading a direction you haven't expected. So God and his grace, we, we left in November, in the first Sunday of November, uh, two years ago now, and the next Sunday they voted 93% for him to be their next pastor. So that was just a, a great gift from the Lord and that transition. Um, Last week, we had an opportunity to be uh, with Baptist Admissions, and anyway, got to meet some missionaries, hear their stories. I love hearing stories of grace. I love hearing people's salvation testimonies. I love hearing what God's doing, because uh, sometimes, you know, we, we don't live in a world filled with good news, right? I mean, we do. We have the good news. That's what the gospel is. We're called to go share the good news. You, I hope you still remember that you are bearers of good news. And in spite of the fact that many people in our culture may say, well, I don't want to hear your news— you actually have the news they most desperately need to hear. And in the midst of all the discouragement of a culture that seems in many ways to turn its back on God, you need to remember that the light of the gospel shines brightly in darkness. Don't be afraid of the darkness. And don't ever let the, the world, and it's, it's, we know biblically the world will wax worse and worse. We know that is just a reality that we live in a hostile territory. And I know we had maybe, and for those of you my age and older, you know that there was a little more Christian culture as our nation. It seemed to be a little kinder. There seemed to be a little more truth, maybe a little more righteousness, and that seems to be moving away. Well, the further a culture moves from God, the more you're going to see it evidenced. 
But when the darkness grows, just remember the light shines brighter. And there's no hope in all that the world is swallowing. And we are actually taking hope to hopeless people. And so as these missionaries share their stories, one lady received a, uh, award, a lifetime service award, and her name was Marilyn Pitzer. But Marilyn served for 49 years in the tribal, among the tribal people, the Indians, the, the real Indians of Venezuela. But one of the neat things of her story is a little girl, and she read missionary stories and stuff, but one of her journal entries was she always wanted to meet a real Indian. She ministered for 49 years where she had to actually take a boat to go down the river to get to the villages she served in. She served in an area where the comforts that you and I take for granted every day didn't exist. She lived in that. In fact, she, when she figured, learned how she was going to have to get to those, the, where she was going to minister in the small boat, she went and took small engine repair classes. Because the last thing she wanted to be is stranded in her little boat on the river. So she, she's quite the lady. This, uh, but the joy she exuded, we got to talk with her for a little bit at it. And when we said, you know, your story is something people need to hear. We got a lot of wrong heroes in a culture. We're a hero culture. We just elevate people, elevate men, elevate sports stars, elevate this, elevate that, elevate certain preachers. And we become hero worshipers. But there, we, there are some really good heroes out there. Heroes of faith that actually should be looked up to. In fact, we have a biblical precedent for that, right? Hebrews 11. But here's a hero of faith that probably most of you would never hear of. And when we talked to her and said, you know, your story really needs to be heard, she just looked at us and said, I had so much fun. Folks, there's joy in serving Jesus. There's true joy, lasting joy. This culture sells you all kinds of idols. Comfort, pleasure, convenience, possessions. It sells all kinds of idols, and then they threaten to take your idol away if you step out of your comfort and actually engage with the gospel. But can I just tell you, those idols will never satisfy your heart. You were made for more than that. And at the end of life, if you let the American idols strip away your joy uh, in serving Christ, you will be, have a life that you'll actually look back on filled with regrets. When you meet a Marilyn Pitzer who served for 50 years on the field and she's now back in the States and, and her joy exudes. She lived without the things in American culture we think we can't live without. But she has a life filled with no regrets and joy that exudes more than when I talk to most believers. Why? Because she spent her life well. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live in the book of Ecclesiastes, also reminds us to kind of live life backwards. He, he reminds us the day of death. He often reminds us of that. It is coming, and it comes quicker. And he actually says the wise will spend more time in the house of mourning than the house of myrrh. We actually recognize that in the house of mourning that that's the end of all men, so the wise take it to heart. What does he mean? He's just saying we actually need to live with the end in view. So that we make decisions now that when we get there, we will not regret those decisions. And so Marilyn just reminded me of that. Then just you know, met some missionaries serving in Slovakia, and they're telling stories of stories of what's going on with Yugoslavian, um, I'm sorry, the Ukrainian refugees and the war. And in the darkness of war, the gospel light is shining bright. God's doing great things around the world, folks. 
You need to hear their stories. We need to stop just listening to the news and all the bad news. We need to hear what God is doing around the world, advancing his gospel, and get excited about our opportunities to impact our community with the gospel. The gospel is still the power of God to save souls, right? Amen? Still the power of God to save souls. And we've been called to take that glorious gospel of good news into a community that's lost light and lost hope and bring hope to the darkness. And so where there is the darkness of war and people being displaced and losing everything, the church of Jesus Christ is ministering to people in the darkness and meeting their physical need, but really stepping in to bring the gospel and hope to them. There's seven refugee cities been set up In each of those cities, the church, the Ukrainian believers have begun to minister to the Ukrainian refugees, and now there are churches in each of those refugee camps because people are coming to Christ and giving their heart to Christ, being baptized and uh, and following the Lord. And it is just exciting to hear what God is doing. So I hope you'd be excited to to, to really lean into what God has for you as you engage with the gospel ministry here. So we're going to look at 2 Timothy and all that long introduction, but anyway. Uh, so we're going to look into 2 Timothy. I, I do want us to be amazed by grace. We're going to look at the topic really in chapter 2. Paul introduces a new section that he really ties in, obviously, he's therefore. Uh, chapter 2 begins with that, and be strengthened by grace. But he's really, he's pulling, obviously, the therefore takes you back into chapter 1. Uh, 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter. He's writing to his beloved son in the faith. Uh, and it is a dear letter. I mean, it is one that he is appealing to Timothy. The torch is being passed. It's your turn, Timothy. You know, it, Paul's life is being spent. He is at the end of life. He knows he's soon going to lose his life, or that's what he believes as he's writing Second Timothy. And so this is coming to a close. And Timothy is, they're facing the opposition of growing hostility towards the gospel in the Roman Empire and increasing persecution. And so Paul is challenging Timothy in that environment or in that, uh, really pointing to the need of the exhortation in chapter 2. In chapter 1, he has the threefold emphasis or repetition of not being ashamed. So you see that before you. Don't be ashamed of, my te- of the testimony about our Lord. Me as his prisoner, share in suffering. That's not an invitation we usually get, right? Come share in our celebration of A and B and C. We have all kinds of celebrations, and we should. Celebrate new births, celebrate birthdays, celebrate anniversaries, celebrate a lot of things, but not too many people are going to send you a card saying, come share with me in suffering. And you're like, sign me up. I want to go to that party. But here's what Paul is saying. Suffering for Christ is an invitation. It's an invitation all believers are supposed to embrace. Because you can't live godly for Christ Jesus in a world that's hostile to the gospel without actually facing opposition. So don't be afraid of being discomforted for Christ. Don't be ashamed of Christ when you're discomforted for him. That's what Paul is telling Timothy, and you're going to have to be able to do that in a culture that's growingly hostile to the faith. Verse, chapter 1, verse 12, so which, you know, he suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believe, and I'm convinced he's able to guard uh, what, that good deposit. So he, you know, Paul's just saying, look, uh, here's the model, the example, and this is one I, I, I hope is conv- convicting to all of us, um, You know, it's one of my favorite slogan, t-shirts, sayings, whatever you want to say, is nobody's useless, at least you can be a bad example. Okay. 
Uh, I hope we, uh, we actually don't ever want to be satisfied to be useless. We're actually called to be useful for our master. And that's one of those compelling, convicting things for me is I want my life to be useful for Christ. So whatever decisions, whatever circumstances I face, one of the compelling realities is am, am I making a decision that actually helps me be useful for Christ? Because I don't want to ever make a decision that actually pushes me towards not being useful for my master. And don't be ashamed of who actually has died for you. Don't be ashamed that he's called you out of darkness into the glorious light of the gospel. Don't be ashamed to identify with Christ, even though your culture wants to shame you. Don't be ashamed. And he says, may the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed, he was not ashamed. That if we're going to minister to people in the midst of the difficulties of gospel ministry life, then we can't be ashamed of identifying with them. And we're looking at the topic then of what it means to have a, a graceful life. And I am intentionally trying to play off the graceful, okay? Things that are graceful are elegant. There, You look at, maybe it's a, uh, watching Olympics and watch a skater and you say it's a graceful routine. It was elegant. It was beautiful. And when we're coming into a graceful life, we're talking what is the impact or the fruit of a life that actually is being strengthened by grace. If my life is being strengthened by the grace of God, then there is going to be evident out into how that affects how I live. And that's what Paul is, is actually laying out here. I mean, he had charged Timothy in the light of the opposition, in the light of the difficulty Timothy's going to face, he told him to fan the flame of the gift that God has given. So keep the flame alive, keep the passion alive. I, I hope even as you, you know, whenever you celebrate the Lord's table, you do this in remembrance of Christ. And I like to say remembrance of Christ is really a recapturing, a reliving of the very reality of your salvation. Remember where you were before you were saved. Remember what God did in transforming your soul and bringing a new life. And, and it's a shame that oftentimes we say the people most excited about Christianity and sharing their faith are new believers. That shouldn't ever be the case. Actually, the more you know and grow in your love for Christ, the more passionate you ought to be about sharing him. We should never lose that zeal for sharing the good news of what God did in saving us. And so if Timothy was going to fan the flame, if he's going to maintain the fervency uh, connected to the gifts, and that should be a reminder as well, look, you might not have the same gifts Timothy has, but if you're a believer, you've been gifted to serve. God has gifted you to serve in his church. He's gifted you to take those abilities, that gift, that gospel, and actually share it with someone else. The gospel came to you on its way to somebody else. You are not the end of the chain. You're actually just one link in a long gospel chain that there were people saved before you that brought the gospel to you, and that gospel came to you on its way to someone else, and you ought to be excited about being a part of what God is doing and rescuing sinners through his grace for his glory. So keep that spark alive, keep that flame, that passion uh, alive. That's Paul's challenge to Timothy in the midst of growing opposition. So let's look, and I'm going to read down through the text, and then we're going to walk through uh, this command to be strengthened, and then we're going to look at really four pictures, word pictures, 
that he paints for us to have an understanding of what it will look like when our lives are strengthened by grace. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 8. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witness and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached by my gospel. So he begins with this, this need to be strengthened, and he ends with the source, really. Remember Christ. Remember what Christ has done. Remember who Christ is in your life, who he is and what he has done in rescuing you. Then he is, we look then at verse 1 and we see the, it really is a command. It's not just a, a need, it's a command. So you're commanded, Timothy's commanded, we're being commanded. You need to be strengthened by God's grace. Timothy faced difficulty in ministry and the challenge is to be faithful. You live in a culture that's going to challenge your faithfulness to Christ. It's going to offer you all kinds of allurements to get you distracted. It's going to offer all kinds of things to, 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 to try to push towards, okay, one of the things you don't talk about is we don't talk about religion. You know, politics and religion are those taboo tub subjects, right? You don't get there because they're going to cause division. And the reality is, is if we aren't the ones sharing the good news of the gospel, who's going to? Who's going to be ministers of hope in a culture that has no hope? Well, we're called on to be strengthened in the light of the difficulties of being faithful to Christ. In the light of growing opposition, what do you need? You need grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. Aren't you glad God gives more grace? You didn't get all the grace you needed when you got saved. You grace every day. Fact is, it's not like a bank account. I can't store it up and then tomorrow go on yesterday's bank account. I need grace every day. That's why Paul begins and ends almost every one of his letters, you know, grace from, grace to you. Because you need grace every day. And so Timothy is being called on to be strengthened. In fact, the verbal tenses here just point to the fact that it is an ongoing need. It's a daily reality. If you're going to be faithful, if you're going to have fervency, if you're going to, be, uh, to do the work that God has given to you to do, you need an ongoing strengthening of God by His grace. So grace is more than just what we often say, the unmerited favor of God. It certainly is that. It actually is more than that. It's actually the unwanted favor of God. Because before salvation, I was actually hostile to God. I didn't even want it, didn't see my need of it. So now as one rescued by that grace, I should be found daily actually asking God to grant more and more grace for the accomplishment of the mission. And so Paul would pray this way. Paul would pray in Ephesians that according to the riches of his glory may grant you to be strengthened with power. So this grace has this strengthening of our inner man. 
through the Spirit in our inner man, and for the grace of God has appeared, uh, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. And so he tells Titus that this grace, which is obviously connected to Christ, is this grace that teaches, it trains, it actually develops us. It is what helps us say no to the world and the ungodliness of this world and its passions. It actually helps us live a life under the authority of God in self-control, which is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. We live a self-controlled, Spirit-directed life that actually begins to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in this age. So we live a godly, upright life. So we desperately need this grace. Grace should be amazing as we sang about it for a number of reasons. And one is, is part of the reason why grace is so amazing is because it is what addresses our greatest needs. And so it addresses the issue of guilt. You, we were all guilty sinners before salvation. And that guilt was then taken away. It was nailed to a cross. I mean, those charges against you, Paul would say, were nailed to a cross. Your sins were covered. So Adam and Eve were covered with coats of skin. You have the need of guilt to be covered. God has covered your guilt. So quit letting the world make you feel guilty. I mean, the Spirit's going to bring conviction, and you know what we're called to do when we have conviction over our sin. We're called to come and actually confess, and God will cleanse us of that sin and forgive us and restore that guilt has been paid for by christ your guilt has been taken off by christ he dealt not only with our guilt but our but but our but our bondage you before salvation were a slave to sin you could not not sin and as a result of, uh, of that redemption, so the price being paid, Christ has purchased you out of slavery to be free from the law of sin, but you're not free. You've actually been made a slave of Christ. You have a new master, a new Lord. You've been delivered from bondage to sin. You don't have to live there. You actually don't have to live in sin. You now have a new capacity by grace to say no to sin and yes to God. You've been delivered from that slavery. God not only dealt with your slavery, but he actually dealt with the wrath of God that was justly against you. We were children destined to wrath. We were born sons of disobedience. We were once condemned already because of our sin. And that just wrath of God was abiding upon us in Christ and took that wrath on a cross. So he was the propitiation, the satisfaction, the appeasement of God's wrath. Christ took that wrath in your stead. If you're here today unreconciled to Christ, let me plead with you that today is a day of reconciliation. Today is a day of rescue. Today is a day of salvation. Christ died for you. It is personal. He took your sin and paid for it on a cross that you could be rescued from wrath. And if you continue to reject Christ and you continue to reject his offer, his call to repent and believe. Because the gospel is both an invitation and a command. You know that, right? Jesus went around commanding people, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The gospel is a command to repent and believe, but it's an invitation, come to me, while you are burdened and heavy laden. Your sin is heavy. It's burdensome. It will not deliver the promises the world tells you. It will not satisfy your soul. It will just leave you dirty, guilty, and stained. Christ died to rescue from all of that. When you come to Christ and you're 
guilt is covered. Your slavery is removed from sin. Your wrath, the wrath of God justly against you is satisfied. And your enmity, your hostility is gone. Before salvation, you were hostile towards God. You couldn't submit to God. You had no interest in things of God. You won't submit your life under the authority of the Word of God because you couldn't. You were hostile to God. But in salvation, God strips away that hostility, that enmity, brings peace with God. That's why the shalom of God is such a big deal. You enter into this new relationship with God where you enjoy peace because you actually now are adopted into the family and you have a new father. And the Spirit of God testifies to your spirit that you belong to Him. I hope that's your testimony today. And if it is, I hope you're still amazed by grace. And if you're not still amazed by grace, then whatever is clouding that vision, I pray God strips away today. That you remember Jesus. The one who did all of that for you. And then we really come to what, where, where do we go to get this grace? And it's really, the author of Hebrews kind of answers that question, doesn't he? Paul in his prayer in Ephesians 3 where he's praying for us to be strengthened, which is really a, them to be strengthened in their man, same thing as what he would be telling Timothy to be strengthened by grace. says he bows his knee, there's prayer. Hebrews says, let us then with confidence come to a throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, again, I think most of us, you know, we, you know, your average prayer sheet in most churches, and I, again, I've never seen your prayer sheet, okay? Your pastor's not shared anything like this with me, so if this is true of you, that's just me just saying this is my experience in 30 years of pastoral ministry. We're good at praying about needs. Physical needs, financial needs, personal relational needs, we're good at doing that. We should. We should be praying that way. And in the time of need, we share prayer requests. But here's the thing. Every day you're needy. Every day you're entering into hostile territory where there's going to be a battle. And every day I should be found at a throne filled with grace asking for help. Because I'm going out into a battle. And I don't find we think that way very well. Nor do I find that we often are found at this throne of grace until the need comes. And when the need begins to press, then we're found praying, God, help. God, we need help. But there's not a day I get up to go face the realities of life in a fallen world where I do not need grace to help me. So are we found faithfully, fervently asking God for his grace to strengthen us and help us actually engage faithfully in the work of the ministry? And then look what happens. Acts chapter 4, they, um, here's after the apostles are before, they're beaten. They come out of the meeting with the Sanhedrin and they're telling them, go, stop preaching Jesus. And they're like, oh, we can't do that. We gotta obey God. And they're beaten and they come back rejoicing. That should be a lesson, right? And then they gather the church, the early church, and what do they say? They, they, they're praying, Lord, look on their threats. Grant to your servants, what? Protection, safety, comfort. No, it's not what he says. He says, grant to your servants to speak the word with all boldness. Now, wait a minute. That's why they got beaten. 
That's why they were arrested. That's why they were taken before the authorities. That's why they lost their jobs. That's why they, they were the outcast in their, current, in their society as Jews who were no longer welcomed in the Jewish community. How do they pray? Lord, give us more boldness. So what, how'd you respond last time you tried to share the gospel and somebody kind of didn't want to hear it? Maybe you got a door shut in your face or somebody said, oh, you're just that religious guy. You're just, keep your religion to yourself. You're just a hater. That's the current culture, right? If you stand against anything, you're a hater. Forget what you stand for, but, you know, so we live in that. So what do we respond? Well, we tend to shrink back. We tend to allow our culture actually layers of shame upon us, like somehow we did something wrong to sharing the gospel. That's not how the apostles responded, nor is it how we should. Don't be ashamed of me or my suffering, Paul says to Timothy. Don't let the culture push shame towards you. Your shame was covered on a cross. Now, with boldness, pray. Pray, Lord, grant us greater boldness. And note in verse 31, what happened? When they prayed, the place in which they were gathered were shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. They asked for boldness. God gave them boldness. Here's one of those other prayer requests that I don't often hear. I don't often hear believers say, Pastor, you know, would you pray with me and for me that God would give me boldness? Or open doors. We don't often ask for those. I do find that when we start praying for open doors and boldness, we get both. God will give you open doors. You believe that? So will we pray that way? Lord, open a door for the gospel. Grant me boldness to step through it. One of the, again, one of the American cultural items is comfort. Comfort, convenience. We all like it. And to actually engage in ministry is going to have to push me out of comfort zones. I'm going to have to be discomforted. I'm going to have to go talk to a coworker that maybe is hostile or a neighbor or a loved one that has made it known they don't want to hear. But I need to be emboldened by Christ to, to, to find ways of delivering gospel hope to people in darkness. That's why we're here. If God was done saving sinners, I promise your church would be done. Gone. We wouldn't need to exist. What I know every day when I get up with life and breath is there is somebody that God wants me to be a part of their, their spirit, their sanctification, their growth, their salvation. God has people for me to minister to. Life is not about me and my comfort. It is about God and his glory and the engagement in the word of God that strengthened me by his grace to actually do the work of God. We're here to engage in the work for God which advances his glory and makes it known. And what do I have to have to do that? Grace. I need to be strengthened by grace. And what does it enable us to do? Well, that's what he describes. with four different metaphors, four different word pictures. And the first one is of a faithful teacher. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also and so here's this, this really great commission kind of reality. I mean, Timothy is being focused. I mean, he is 
really, not, he's not an apostle, but he's been trained directly by Paul. He is an apostolic representative to the churches in Ephesus. He's there, so we call him the pastoral epistles because he's given so much revelation about life in the church and leadership and organization. And so Timothy's in this capacity, but Paul is reminding Timothy, just like God saved him and Paul mentored Timothy, Timothy needs to be looking for people to mentor that God is still in the saving business. He's in the calling business. He's calling, and, and you look for faithful men to train up for ministry. And so Timothy is directed specifically towards uh, the pastoral kind of realities, and every local church should be praying that way, that raise up within this church the next pastor. Raise up some young man in this church or some man in this church who God burdens about ministry, who will be trained, who will be prepared, and maybe they'll be sent out as a church planter. Maybe they're going to go pastor somewhere else, but maybe by God's grace, the, the pastor of this church, next level, come from this church. But this doesn't just have pastoral ramifications because the Great Commission actually engages all of us. Right? Go make disciples. Really, it's a part of, so as you're going, wherever you're going, there is a work you're supposed to be engaged in. And that's the making of disciples. Disciples make other disciples. It's just who we are. At least that's who we're supposed to be. We're actually followers of Christ, and as a follower of Christ, I am to actually take the gospel message to someone else and then teach them. That's why the Great Commission goes on. You make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. We actually are involved in their growth and their spiritual life, so we should have people in this community that we're praying for by name for gospel opportunities to share Christ with them. And uh, here, here's, it, it would be nice if everybody in your community got saved, if God brought that kind of revival. I mean, who would be upset by that? And at times we can feel overwhelmed in, 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 in the realities of gospel work and there's so many people hostile. But here's my challenge to you. Who's one person, one, in this community who's lost, who you know by name, you know their family, you know their history, or you're growing to know that, that you're seeking to love to Christ. Who is one person lost in this community that you pray for regularly, that you go out of your way to be their friend, that you're building a relationship with to share Christ? And while it may not happen this year, just think, if every one in this church reaches one, and let's just be, say it takes five years, but everyone in this church reaches one over the next five years, your church would double in size. It would actually do more than that because those people have families. And those people start reaching people. And so when we think of evangelism, sometimes we just think, well, we got to win the whole neighborhood. No, I, one. God has put people in your path. Who is the one person in your life that doesn't know Christ that you can lovingly minister the gospel to? Praying for God to bring them to himself. That you would be able to disciple them. That you would be able to take the truth God has poured out in your heart and put it into another. So we're all called to do.
That's what disciples do. We take the gospel that has come to us and we bring it forward to others. Paul would say he received this disciple, he received grace and apostleship to bring about this obedience of faith, this faith that produces an obedience to Christ for the sake of his name. This was the purpose of the commissioning of Paul, and it came with an obligation to take the gospel forward, which he could point to Timothy and say, God has done that. He's giving me you, Timothy. Now, Timothy, it's your turn. Who are you going to take along? Paul, you just study his missionary journeys. He's always taking people with him. Who are you taking with you? I mean, you're in the Word. You're growing in grace. Who are you taking with you? You're taking your children along, parents. You're helping them come along in your growth and grace. You're where discipleship begins is in the home, right? You, parents, teaching your children. And then it moves out into the community, into relationships, and we take people with us on this journey of faith. And it transforms how we actually live. He tells Timothy to entrust what's been entrusted to him. And that entrustment is just pointing to the value of the gospel. It's something that's to be kept safe, kept true, guarded, to be delivered on accurately to others. You don't have to sell Jesus. You don't cheapen the gospel to get converts. We take the gospel as it was delivered to us, and we call people to repentance and faith, turn from sin and turn to God. And we walk with them through that journey as God's grace works in their life. It's great commission living that we're called on to do as being disciple makers. And, um, Matthew chapter 4, and Jesus called the disciples. really wasn't even the first time he called them. They, they, you know, they, but he calls them from their nets because they went back to fishing. They'd gone on the first trip with him and gone through Nazareth, and Jesus was rejected in Nazareth. They get back to Capernaum, and they go back to fishing. We're not sure what they were thinking. Maybe they thought it was over because they followed Jesus and everybody in Nazareth rejected him. They come back to Capernaum. They go back to their nets. Jesus goes back and calls them out of the boats. And this time he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. This is radical transformation. You have a new occupation. And you're called to engage in taking the gospel to others. And really, what a disciple does is he knows and follows Christ. His life has been changed, and he is growingly committed to the mission. We're to be fishers of men, amen? I mean, I learned in Florida. I lived in Florida for 11 years, went out fishing. I learned I don't like fishing. But I love catching. If I can go out and catch fish and take people and catch fish, I enjoyed catching fish. Fishing wasn't as much fun if you didn't catch. But do note what this text says. You'll be fishers of men, but he actually says you're going to catch. There's fish for you to catch, folks. There's no greater joy than being a part of seeing somebody else come to Christ. Do you believe that? You know, we live for the things that bring us joy. We live for those. We protect those. We invest in those. We buy more of them. You know, so, I mean, but they, I, uh, I like to, I used to illustrate this way. In, in Vermont, they have this thing called a maple creamy. Have any of you been to Vermont? Okay. You ever had a maple creamy? You know what it is? A maple creamy is a soft serve ice cream made with real dairy cream and has maple syrup in it. 
and they are, you know, so after we learned about them, we made a request to find what the best maple creamy was in the state. That wasn't really good for my waistline, but it was fun. <laughs> but you know what? You, I, you learned, I, enjo- I enjoyed them. It's one of the things I do miss about Vermont. I, st- I miss people, too, but anyway. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, we made, you know, it was something you enjoyed, something you enjoyed. We made it a kind of a game. We'd go look, we'd go taste, go find different people, different syrup, different kind of combinations, and you go explore. Well, I think you get the point. Your joy in serving Christ should drive you to want to share Christ with others. And if I'm so afraid to share the gospel, then I've lost my joy. And I've tried to replace it with something else, but that something else will never bring it. It'll just leave you disappointed and feeling guilty. Because you were made for something better. You were made for finding joy in serving Jesus. And if you try and find your joy outside of that, you'll always just be frustrated. There's joy in serving Jesus. Not everybody we're going to share the gospel is going to get saved. I know that. In fact, the vast majority won't. The way is narrow. Few that are on it. I get it. But the reality is, as Jesus has promised, there's other sheep that must come, and we get to go get them. So we need to trust the great shepherd and go engage with the gospel ministry with excitement because he's going to draw, and that's just what we've been called to do. To become fishers of men, transformed people whose passions are different. We don't live for the same thing the world lives for. We have a different source of contentment, a different joy. That should be evident. People that, and that's where Paul is with Timothy. You need to be strengthened by grace. And then you'll be a faithful teacher. You'll be a discipler who makes other disciples. Who are you discipling? Who's discipling you? Who's the Paul in your life? Who's the Timothy in your life? Who's the Barnabas? Paul had Barnabas that was sharpening. Who's that? Who are you faithfully and accountably studying the word with that's challenged you to grow? Who are you taking the word to, praying to see them come to Christ? That's the life of discipleship. It's not just coming to church. We come to church. God's commanded us to come here and worship and the reality is God's promised to be here present with us. And I appreciate the way that your pastor prayed today. The reality is if we truly worship, we don't walk out of here the same. We're different because we've actually seen the glory of God. We behold the glory of God through the word of God. We're transformed. That's what Paul says. And so true worship's always transformational. Now, we can all be guilty of the fact we all are creatures of habit. You're all sitting in your assigned seats this morning, I assume. You know, every pastor knows when you're missing. Why? Because your seat's empty. You think your pastor doesn't know, but we do, because all we have to do is look around the auditorium, and everybody's in their assigned seats. Folks, it gets so ridiculous. The one of the church I pastored in Florida, there was the side that had the piano, the side that had the organ. It was just a little bit larger than this auditorium, but I found having people in our home and getting to know the church as a new pastor, the people who sat on the piano side didn't know the people on the organ side. And they'd been in church together more than 10 years. And they didn't even know each other. And it wasn't really a big church. It's just we're all such creatures of habit. And we can do worship as our creature of habit reality. I get up on Sunday morning, I put on clothes, I maybe brush my teeth, hopefully. But you know, I look in the mirror, I hope, do a little bit of, you look good, I look at it, and the guy's not so much. Ladies are like, no, don't dress that way. Come on, you can, I can fix that. You know, so you get, get dressed and you come out and you come to church and you greet the people that you're normally used to greeting. You smile. Everybody lies. How are you doing? Great. Good week. We all lie to each other. It's all good. 
you know, reality is life is hard in a broken world and we don't come in to minister to others. We come in expecting somebody to make us feel better. And if we don't walk out of the church feeling a little bit better about our life, somehow it was the pastor's fault. Or the song leader's fault. And the reality is God's called you to serve. When you walk in those doors of church, your heart should be to serve. Who in the church needs to be encouraged today? Who in the church needs somebody to sit down and pray with them? How about weep with them? Do I know the trials people are going through enough to actually weep with them? That's what God's actually called us to do. That's what it means to truly love one another. We come in the church in the presence of God expecting God to show up. God does show up. His word is open. He speaks. The question is, are you hearing? Are you receiving? Are you welcoming? Thus, are you seeing and being transformed? God enables us to be disciples who actually make other disciples, but God enables us to be good soldiers. That we endure, that these are just verses again, I'll just say off the cuff, these aren't necessarily things that we enjoy. Endure hardness. No, I like my comfort. You know, we long ago went away, and this kind of, I mean, it's silly, but it's still simple. I mean, there are days when the church in Florida I pastored, they all would tell me the stories of when they all sat on the uh, orange crates when they started church. It's all they had. They had orange crates. They sat. And, you know, today we're all in nice, comfortable chairs because why? We love comfort. And I'm not against chairs, folks. I'm not against comfort. I'm not. I, I like them better than orange crates, I promise. I've sat on a lot of things in a lot of different nations to, to worship the Lord. There were nothing like what we have. I'm thankful for what we have. But those don't make church. Comfort doesn't make church. The Word of God changing the people of God is why we come. And we can endure hardness, and that hardness in our culture is going to look like being willing to step out and share the gospel in difficult places. And as a good soldier, we, we don't entangle ourselves. We, and it's not that we don't do other things in life. It's not, don't hear this as like, all you ever do, you just, we just preach the gospel to people, preach the gospel to people. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you don't have a life. I'm just saying that apart from the gospel, you don't have a life. You do. And you have vacation with your family and there's things you enjoy, great. But here's the thing, they aren't the purpose of your life. Don't misplace them. Don't let them become what you live for. They're things, they're good gifts from God, that's what Solomon would say, but they're not the purpose of your life. And they will not satisfy your heart. Enjoy them as a good gift from God, but make sure that your devotion to Christ is growing. And you won't ever displace serving Christ, being a good soldier for the sake of the comforts or the conveniences or the pleasures of this world because there's one that you actually need to please, the one who called you to be a soldier. For all of you in the military, you get it completely. If you had military service, you know what it was like to be recruited in the military, go to boot camp, and yes, sir, and you're figuring out what you're, when they say jump, you're saying how high, you get what that command structure looks like. But somehow we think servanthood to Christ looks like voluntary. I'll do it when it's convenient to me. Ministry is never convenient. But it is obligatory. Because I've been gifted to do it and responsible to do it. And I have a commander-in-chief who is actually king of king and lord of lords. And I should be saying, yes, sir, how high?
because it is an honor to serve the King of glory. It is an honor and a privilege to be his soldier. So I engage in the mission, and I just kind of quickly go through. Here's this, you know, what do we do as good soldiers? Well, we're going to endure hardness as we engage in a right for life in the midst of death. We're living in a culture filled with people dying. They're not living. People without Christ are breathing themselves to death. My son put that in a poem years ago, and I use it all the time because it so captures that reality. They aren't living. They think they are. They're living their best life now. Ooh, okay. But they're actually dying with every breath because after birth, you're on your way to death. And the only thing that stops that death cycle is eternal life. That means when that physical body fails, your life actually goes on because you have eternal life from Christ. So we engage for life in the midst of death. We avoid the distractions. We don't get entangled. We remain steadfast under fire. We don't run, duck, and cover. We don't quit with one fundamental ambition that there's one whose approval really matters most to us, and it's Christ. It enables us not only to be good soldiers, and I'm just going to jump through, but a crowned athlete. We actually will run according to the rules. That means we actually delight, or you've been reading Psalm 119. How many times does he say, I delight myself in thy law? I delight in your precepts. Your law is my pleasure day and night. I meditate in it day and night. I keep your commandments. I value them. I treasure them. I guard them. It's just over and over the value of the word, the value of the word. But it's not just the word. It's actually word and testimony. It's word and commandment. It's word and law. And all of that demands a response. It's commandment. If I love it, I keep it. If it's law, it rules my life. If it's a testimony I hear, I follow. So there's examples to be followed, there's commandments to be kept, there's law to order my life. All of that's found in the Word. So it's my delight, it's my treasure, because I live under its authority. And the blessings come from the man who keeps his commandments, who delights in his ways. And that's what we're called to do. We run our life, we live our life under the authority of God. That's why the Bible says to just live by faith. We live by the faith that God has given to us. And this text in Romans is just whatsoever does not proceed from faith is sin. And that's a tremendous text. It's really one that's, that's helped me in so many ways to think biblically. Whatever doesn't come from faith is sin. So what does that mean? Well, faith, your confident trust in God, and remember there's one reality, one person that you actually live whose judgment you really care about. None, I mean, it's not that I don't care about what people think about me, but at the end of the day, the only person's judgment that really counts is Christ. And it is his judgment seat I'm going to stand before. And so I really am concerned there. So one of the real issues about faith is faith actually believes God. So I, in faith, must believe what I am doing pleases God or I should not do it. It's like if I'm going to be a good husband, then I try to make decisions that actually my wife is happy with. So if we're going to go out to eat this afternoon, I'm not going to pick a place that she doesn't like and say, I'm going there, because I want to please me. That wouldn't be a very good husband, right? At least, ladies, I hope you'd agree with that. 
So, you know, I, it's like, anyway, there's a lot of ways I can illustrate, but the point of the matter is, is, is to whatever is not of faith. So if I am doing something that I am not sure really pleases God, here's what is sure. You're sinning. I don't care what it is you're doing. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're not sure that that thing pleases God, you're his servant. You actually have been bought with precious blood. Your life no longer belongs to you. It belongs to him. You don't have a right to use your life for yourself. You actually are to use it for his glory. And so to make choices, willing choices that you are not convinced please God is to choose sin. So if you're going to be an athlete that actually finishes the race, then you have to please the one who matters. It's what it means to live by faith. You please the one that matters. You actually please Christ in the decisions you make. You make choices that reflect that so that at the end of the race, as Paul would warn, that we don't find ourselves, the word is a dokamos, one without faith. One disqualified, one who actually has evidenced no faith because you took your eye off Christ and you ran for self. And we see that he says it enables us to be hardworking farmers. I love pastors. I love pastors' families. I was a pastor for 30 years. I get the privilege now of training pastors. I get the opportunity to go out and meet with pastors, and I just enjoy being with pastors. I'll just tell you, they're among the hardest working people I know. I worked for the computer industry and worked for electronic data systems, which was Ross Perot's company. Some of you would know that. And it was a busy, busy world, busy, busy experience, lots of work is always there. But I can honestly tell you, there is nothing as pulling, as demanding, as life-altering as the work of the ministry. While I can grant you that there are people who have gone in the ministry looking for maybe an easy job, it doesn't exist in the ministry. But here's the other side for you as a church member. If church is a convenience commodity to you, you're doing it wrong. You're just doing it wrong. Church isn't about convenience. Church is about Christ, who is worthy of your very best. He is to be loved above everything else. He's to have preeminence, is what Paul would say. And that means he's worth you laboring for. The gifts and abilities he's given you you can't imagine not doing it. An old pastor told me when I first surrendered a call to preach, he said, well, here's your test. And I said, what is that? He said, if you can do anything else, do it. God didn't call you. Maybe an oversimplification, but it does communicate a really big truth. God called you to serve. You shouldn't be satisfied not serving. And if you are, there's something wrong in your spiritual walk. It's just not right. There's joy in serving Jesus, and there is no regrets in spending your life for Christ. You get to the end of the life and you spend it for you, it's going to be filled with regrets. Filled with regrets and filled with train wrecks of relationships, of lives that crumbled. Because you can save no one. You can change no one's life. But Christ saves and transforms lives.
Him we serve. Him we make known. He changes lives. That's why he ends in verse 7. Well, we're really 8, but verse 7, he reminds us, think over what I say. So meditate is what he's telling you. Spend time in this text. What should you do this week? You should look back over this passage. You should say, Lord, strengthen me by grace, and as a result, I'm going to engage in faithful ministry to others. I'm going to be a disciple who makes disciples. Lord, help me to be strengthened by grace so I don't shrink back when it gets hard. I don't shrink back at suffering, and I don't get distracted, and I don't let the world swallow me up and cause me to be so busy I don't really make time for ministry and for people. Ministry is people. Lord, don't let me do that. And Lord, help me to make no decision that would dishonor you. No decision. No temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man, and God will, with the temptation, make a way of escape that you may be able to endure. We always want the trial gone. God said, I'm going to give you the grace to go through it. I know we'd like it gone, but you actually will have the grace to go through it. And in the midst of that, you do not have to sin because you've been rescued from sin's dominion. You're now under Christ. You belong to Christ. Live like it. Live like you belong to Christ. God, give me the grace that I might actually work hard at the ministry. Your pastor's going to work hard. Why? It's just how God made him how he wired him, how he's gifted him, he's going to engage. Don't let him run out of steam because you're content to watch him work hard. Join in the labor. Amen? Join in the labor. Gone are the days when 20% of the people did 80% of the work in the church. That never was right, never should have been right, never should have been okay. It is God has called you to serve. It should be 100% participation hard work of the ministry. That's what grace produces. You say, I don't want that. If you don't have grace to help you every day, you know what you're going to do. Sin. Sin deceives, sin destroys. You cannot escape that. You allow sin to deceive you, it will destroy you and those around you. You need grace. Grace delivers you from the deception of sin and helps you to serve for what matters. Think on these things, and the Spirit of God will transform your inner man, your thinking, and your affections, that you might actually do what God's called you to do. And that's why he ends with, remember Christ. Keep your focus on Christ. You need grace. Be strengthened. It's a command. Be found at the throne of grace, asking God for grace to strengthen you, and then know what it looks like. When grace is active, working in your life, these truths will be evident. May God do a gracious work in our hearts. Father, thank you for your love, your kindness. Thank you for the attention of this dear congregation and for this group of people who you've called out of darkness to your glory, who you've equipped, who you've gifted, You've brought together as a body of Christ to love one another, encourage one another, and engage in gospel work together in this community to make your glory known. Help them as they labor together. Lord, equip them, stir them, grant them boldness, shake us from lethargy, shake us from comfort, push us out as laborers in your harvest field and call forth others, even from this congregation, to the work of the ministry and making your name known. It is great. 
and it will be greatly praised among the nations. May we be a part of making it known. And Lord, give this church fruit as they love one another, as they labor in this community to make you known. Give them fruit. Encourage their hearts. Strengthen them by your grace. And may you be glorified in it. 